First off, before we start, let me just say, I'm cold. Are you guys cold? <laughs> we got all these like HEPA filters, which is great, but it just like blows cold air everywhere. So I'm going to have to preach myself warm, okay? So um, apologies for that. And, and you, I've been told that if you like say amen, uh, then maybe it'll like warm you up too. I'm just, I'm just throwing that out. Try it. See if it works. See if it works. Um, well, so this is the first Sunday of December. This is the first um, Sunday that, that we're going to be uh, observing or we're kind of beginning our Advent uh, series. Uh, Advent, uh, maybe you know this, uh, maybe you don't. Uh, it's a time of waiting. It comes from the Latin word, which means coming um, or like the arrival. And so in the days that are leading up, to, uh, to the festival that we call Christmas, the annual reminder or celebration of the incarnation of the Son of God. Uh, the days leading up to that has been a time that the, the Christians throughout ages have paused, not only to reflect on the fact that Christ has come, but also on what we just said together, that Christ is coming again. And so in the weeks leading up to uh, Christmas Day, uh, Christians oftentimes reflect back on the ancient longing of the people of God for the Messiah that was to come, and then also find themselves in the idea of, and we are waiting for that same Messiah to come again. Uh, not to come in humility as a babe, but to come in power and in glory. And so we're kind of commemorating or joining in with that ancient longing. So Christ has come Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ is coming again. And so for the first Sunday of this season, we're going to be looking at Genesis chapter 3. And Liam read most of that section. Let me just say, even as you heard it read, <coughs> you certainly noticed that this section of Scripture touches on so many things. Did you guys, like, were your, were your minds, like, ping-ponging every verse that's read? You're like, hey, what about this? Oh, hey, that, oh, oh, hey, what about that? What about that? So let me just say, Genesis 3 addresses a wide swath of, of the Christian life and experience. It's, it's foundational, right? And so as a foundation, that means that it, it connects to so many other things. Obviously, the origin of sin and flowing directly after that, the introduction of death. But then in between is the arrival of shame and the creation of the clothing industry. Um, there's implications. Take a second, but you got it. Yeah. <laughs> um, so there's implications in Genesis 3 for all of creation. Uh, there's implications for men and for women and the way men and women relate with each other, on labor and vocation, on gardening and everything in between. Uh, and that doesn't even get into the bigger pictures of like, how do we understand this like literary genre? How do we understand this as like, what, what about the origin of the serpent or, or the devil behind him? There's all these questions. I just want to say I acknowledge them, but not today. <laughs> in any sermon, you can only say so many things. And so here's the main point of what we're going to be talking about. Uh, we're going to be talking about Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. The seed of the woman, 
Or we could even talk about the, the crushing of the serpent. So the first promise of the Messiah to come is going to be our meditation for today. And there's a slide of Genesis 3.15, and I think the next one that I'll just just read out once more. Um, And I will put enmity, opposition, between you and the, can't read it, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. So, We sang a song, that last song that we sang, we kind of lingered over those lyrics, didn't we? Show me who you are. As much as we were praying or asking God to show us who he is, he's going to answer you through Genesis 3 today. He's going to show you that he is the virgin-born skull crusher. That is who he is. It's not all of who he is. That's the representation, or that's the revelation of an aspect of the Messiah's character here in the beginning. So let's briefly pause and pray, and then we'll look at the first clue that a rescuer was coming to this lost and ruined world. So Lord, we pray that you would show us who you are. We pray that we would learn perhaps a new aspect of your character I pray that we can be reminded of your plan and that you would encourage us, perhaps even from an unlikely source this morning. There's nobody in this room that is over-encouraged right now. There is no surplus of, of hope in the world. And so we need you, Lord, to come and to come alongside and to, to, to lift the weary and to give strength to the weak, um, to strengthen feeble knees. Uh, Lord, we pray that through Genesis 3 of all passages, that you would give your hope to us today on this Advent. We pray this in the name of the serpent-crushing, virgin-born, Savior of the world, Jesus Christ. Amen. So big picture. Uh, Genesis 3 starts out in uh, in a very good place. Uh, Liam didn't read the earlier verses, but I'm going to assume there's a general familiarity with this. Uh, Whether or not you were brought up in, in church or not, or if you're familiar with the Bible, there's like the vague cultural awareness of the Garden of Eden. God created this place and put Two image bearers, um, Adam and Eve, our first parents, are placed into this beautiful garden, and they're given a job. They're tasked with the responsibility of cultivating and looking after the good world that God has made. And there is one and only one prohibition that is given to them. And you can find that in Genesis 2, verse 17. Uh, You could eat whatever you like, he says, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. It's a good world, it's a good garden filled with good trees. And God says, but this one's not for you. I doubt that this tree was like ugly or menacing looking. I doubt that it had a a bad smell. 
You know, we've been privileged to know and to encounter and be, befriend uh, many Singaporeans over the years uh, in this church, and, and they have taught me of a fruit called jackfruit. Anyone heard of it? Anyone familiar with it? Uh, this fruit, you are not allowed to eat it in the subway, because when you open it up, it overwhelms the whole cart. It's this... I'm told, delicious tasting, yet horrible smelling uh, fruit. However, guys, this tree was not like that. It it did not have this like odor that menaced and that that gave off this appearance. It likely looked just as good as everyone else. But God said, he simply asked them as a sign of like obedience and trust, um, would you just listen to your father's warning and not eat from him? Trust me. And, and, and as trusting me, would you obey me? There's an old hymn that maybe some of you know. It says, trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Essentially, he asked them to trust him. And then, slithering onto the scene in chapter 3, uh, we have this, this figure who has no introduction it takes the rest of the Bible for us to kind of understand who this, this figure is. But he just shows up and he's kind of singing a different tune. Um, he says to, to Eve, you can eat this if you want to. You know, and here's the thing. God is probably withholding something good from you. If you want to be wise, tell you what, the path to wisdom, it cuts straight across the commands of God. If you want to be wise, you have to disobey God in this. You won't die. In fact, Once you do this, you'll be more alive than ever. You'll truly be enlightened. We have a bit of conversation back and forth, trying to argue, but eventually she's drawn into his scheme. I appreciate what Sinclair Ferguson uh, writes uh, about this. And I'm I'm kind of indebted uh, to Sinclair for kind of unlocking uh, so much of this to me. He says that she assessed the significance of the tree through her eyes rather than through her ears. Instead of listening to what God said about it, she thought about it only in terms of what she could see on it. After all, it looked delicious as well as attractive. She had not grasped the divine principle. Believers see with their ears and not their eyes by listening to God's word. So Genesis 3 says, well, she looked at it, it looks good, might as well, rather than obeying the voice of the Lord. And ironically, as we heard in Genesis 3, after eating that, first Eve, then her husband, their eyes were opened, but what they saw was actually their unfitness, which then prompted shame. The exact opposite, 180 degrees different than the enlightenment and the wisdom that Eve was promised. And where shame comes, the instinct of self-preservation and hiding come instantly afterward. And so there is this hiding, this covering, covering from one another and certainly trying to cover themselves from God. But we know you cannot hide from God. Uh, Here we have in 11 and, and around that area, we have the Lord finding them as he always does. And there's three consecutive curses that are doled out upon these three figures in Genesis 3, the man, the woman, and the serpent. 
And again, it's, it's a vaguely familiar concept. There's, there's blame shifting, uh, there's guilt spreading that now has become kind of the expected pattern of human interaction, unfortunately. Uh, kind of going in reverse, we have the judgment on Adam related to his task of gardening and his calling to turn the whole earth into the garden for God. The judgment on Eve relates to childbearing and interspousal relationships. Uh, and there is this, this most strict of judgment upon the serpent. And that is the main focus of this morning's sermon. He's told that the, his curse is that he's going to eat dust for his life. Kind of this like Hebrew way of saying it's like total defeat. Or, as Freddie Mercury would say, another one bites the dust. You know? So... It took a while, and it still wasn't that good, actually. So, um, but even even this, like these series of like three judgments or curses in a row, this one has like this seed of hope that will spread and that will germinate and come into wonderful fruition and harvest later on. Again, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. My friends, this is the first promise of the Messiah to come. That the seed of the woman, this can mean humanity to come. Like everyone, Eve is called the mother of all that lives, and so like all that come after um, Eve, I suppose, could be described as as her offspring. And there is an opposition between uh, the devil himself and the human race. Yeah, that's true. Um, Enmity speaks of like ill will and hatred and antagonism. But we see that it builds up to say a specific person is going to come. And this one is going to come from the line of Eve a representative who's going to stand in that place of all humanity and do battle against the serpent. And in that conflict, the seed of the woman would be wounded, but he will deliver a death blow to the devil. He'll be wounded. His heel is going to be crushed, but you don't recover from a crushed head. Now guys, I have, my heel has been wounded. I remember it well. It was uh, on the morning of, I think, an air, like an early morning like trip to the airport or something like that. So I woke up earlier than, than usual, uh, got out of bed. I must have like leapt out of bed with all my weight, as you do, you know, and, and, and right onto um, like, like a lead, like a plug, like, like one of those three prongs, and, and they're, they're up, you know? So they're not sharp. They're dull. They're, like, they're squared. And it just like went right into my, my heel. And like it was, so, it was so bad. However, I lived to tell the tale. Now, and maybe afterwards, maybe, maybe each of you have your own gross story of like stepping on something and the way it entered into your body. Um, but, like, but that's mine. So a heel injury really hurts for quite a while afterwards. But there is a recovery. Here I am on my own. I'm standing, I'm standing up because of this. But here we have this promise. Injury is going to take place, but death will come to one. And this is like the opening scene of the whole Bible. Paradise created. Paradise lost. We're introduced to the villain. And the promise is given that his like slithery days will be numbered. Someone's going to come in the line of of Eve who's going to be wounded, but will at the proper time crush his head into the dirt. 
Now here's, here's an image that, that I saw actually years ago, and I've been, it's been in my mind kind of all, all week long. Uh, this is like a, it's an image that someone imagines. This doesn't happen. It's a metaphor. Um, but of Eve and Mary in, in conversation. This is like a meditation or thought on this. Eve fully, feeling full of shame and guilt, uh, being comforted by, by Mary. You know, perhaps to say, like, you, you're to be the mother of all that's living, but yet you've brought death instead. Uh, maybe saying something along the lines of, you know, God is going to use me to bring the one who's going to undo what just has been done. It's kind of a reminder of the, the kindness of God. We're reminded of the connection between these, these two mothers and what one brought into the world and what the other brought into the world. And uh, I think uh, maybe you caught it, maybe you didn't, but in that image, uh, as, as beautiful as it is, and as much as I do like it, um, there is uh, the mother of Jesus, Mary, who is stepping on the serpent. Uh, maybe you caught it, maybe you didn't. I just want to highlight that. Um, because we know, because we have Genesis chapter 3 open, that it's her son Jesus, the seed of the woman, who is going to be doing this deadly stomping later on. So as we said a few weeks ago, um, you know, we're a church that is like Bible treasuring, and we're also a church that is Jesus-centered. And, and as you know, these two things are not in competition with each other. Uh, we know that Jesus is like a quoter of the Bible, a preacher of the Bible, and the Bible at its deepest core is a book that's all about Jesus. And in Luke chapter 24, which was referenced just a couple of weeks ago, uh, we have this, uh, this scene after Christ's resurrection as he walks on this long road uh, with two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And it says that beginning with like the, he talks about the books of Moses and how they pointed towards him. The law, the prophets, and the Psalms, he says, they're all pointing towards me. And it says that on that road, he talked about how the whole Old Testament points towards him. You know, I often say, I wish I had a podcast of that. I wish there was a recording of that. First, that would be worth learning Aramaic for, you know? That would be learning whatever language to be able to listen in as Jesus talks through the books of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and talks about how they're all pointing towards him. Do you know where we would have started? I'm willing to bet he started at Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. He says, you know that promised one? You know the one that's going to be wounded? You know, and then perhaps even pointing to the very scars on his feet that he got just three days prior? He says, you know what? That's me. Speaking about this. Speaking about how he is the, the promised seed. Uh, the image of the, the serpent in perpetual conflict of the lineage of the woman. But ultimately, that conflict is going to come to a conclusion. And it comes with the seed of the woman coming and bringing an end to that. Spurgeon says, this is the first gospel sermon that was ever delivered on the surface of the earth. Genesis 3. It was a memorable discourse indeed, with Jehovah himself for the preacher, and the whole human race, and the prince of darkness, for the audience. And so he's preaching the good news that someone's going to come who's going to fix this. And as we are, as 
Kean reminded us, as Phil reminded us, as we are beginning towards this Christmas season, as we're in a time of Advent, uh, it reminds me of something that myself and uh, Ian Nepper uh, used to do many years ago. Uh, we used to go on Patrick Street with a really cheap old video camera and do these like interviews with people on the streets. Uh, Vox Pops, uh, they were called Vox Populi, and we would ask questions that had to do with like theology or scripture, and then oftentimes we would like connect them to the Sunday sermons and, and show them. Uh, it was a lot of work. We were, we were less busy back then, so we had time to kill, um, but it was a great way of like connecting with people and asking relevant questions, and, and uh, if, if you want to see what me and Ian looked like when we were skinnier less gray hair, and had less on our minds than you could find those, those old videos. But we did a lot during the Christmas season, every single year, asking people, hey, what's the meaning of Christmas to you? And, and, and a variety of, of answers would be given, you know? The Late Late Toy Show, um, that people would talk about how excited they were to see the streets um, lit up, you know, the Christmas tree lights on Patrick Street, the Brown Thomas window, um, and then more general stuff about family and togetherness. Um, sometimes people would have something more morose or kind of, you know, the darker side of Christmas, you know, talking about thing, people they miss or the reality of deaths on the road. or all. Anyway, it's, it's an interesting slice of what people on Patrick Street thought about when they thought about Christmas. Imagine if the Apostle John was walking down Patrick Street. He was doing Panna. And, and, and one of us was able to hold a microphone to the Apostle John and say, hey, hey, John, what does Christmas mean to you? Well, he would answer with 1 John 3.18. He would say, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. That's it. He would say the reason why there's Christmas, the reason why the Son of God has appeared, born of a virgin, came as a baby, the reason why is because he wants to destroy the devil, and this is step one. And we would say, whoa, Apostle John, thanks. Wow, that's a, that's a deep insight. He looks at the incarnation and the Christmas season as kind of like wartime language. He came to destroy the works of the devil. And when Christ appeared, it was to undo what the serpent has done. By his life and by his ministry, and ultimately through his death and through his resurrection, he deconstructed, he dismantled, and destroyed the works of the devil. And this is his job as the skull-crushing seed of the woman. Jesus' coming accomplished wonderful, multiple wonderful things. But chiefly, he comes to destroy the works of the devil. Have you noticed, if you've re read through the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, have you noticed how often Jesus finds himself in conflict with demonic powers or with, with the devil himself? It's this, like, the serpent, like Satan, is present in the pages of the Old Testament. He's there, you know? And, and his works are evident in the pages of the Old Testament. But like, right about the time that, that Jesus was born in the manger, and for about like, you know, 30 years around there, it seems that there is like, his activity on earth, or at least the recorded activity on earth that we have in the pages of scripture, is ramped up like a hundred times. Demonic possession which is, as far as I could think, is largely unknown 
in the pages of the Old Testament appears like on every other page of the Gospels. Once God becomes flesh and steps into this world, it's almost as if there's like this counter-offensive and quite literally like all hell breaks loose and there is conflict. Satan even breaks into the inner circle of the 12 disciples. First, by trying to influence Peter to talk Jesus out of the cross. Matthew chapter 18 who do people say that I am? You're the Christ, son of the living God. Jesus says, that's right. And he says, I'm going to suffer and die on the cross for the, for the people's sins. Peter says, oh, no, no, that's not how it's going to be, Lord. Jesus answers him and says, you know what? Like, Satan has influenced you to try to talk me out of the cross. So here we have this, like, other sneaky way of attack. And then changing tactics at the last minute we also have the devil himself influencing, empowering Judas to be the one who betrays him there. So it's like, oh no, don't. And then it's rushing into it as well. Anyway, we have this, like, this imagery of conflict between the Son of God and the devil himself. Dustin Kensrew, in his song, This is War, speaks about Christmas in this language. This is war like you ain't seen. This winter's long, it's cold and mean. With hangdog hearts, we stood condemned, but the tide turns now at Bethlehem. This is war, and born tonight, the word as flesh, the Lord of light, the Son of God, the low-born King, whom demons fear and whom angels sing. This is war on sin and death. The dark will take its final breath. It shakes the earth confounds all plans, the mystery of God as man. And so it is this offensive thing. He's on the offense. And his life was in conflict with the devil, and of course his death especially so. Here's some scripture. Colossians chapter 3, starting in verse 13, uh, says this. You were dead because of your sins and because of your sinful nature that was not yet cut away. Then God made you alive in Christ, for he forgave all of our sins. He canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. In this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. The death of Jesus is the payment that we owe for the sins that we've accrued, and Jesus paid for them upon the cross and did so, bringing shame upon the devil. The one who would like to have claim over us is mocked by the cross. Hebrews chapter 2 says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. This is one of the reasons why God became flesh, so he could live life as a human and die as a human, paying the death that humans deserve in order to destroy the devil. New City Catechism asks this question, why must the Redeemer be truly human? So that in human nature, he might on our behalf perfectly obey the whole law and suffer the punishment for human sins, and also that he might sympathize with our weakness. 
And then finally, here's a voice from the ancient church who has looked to this passage just as we have today and has seen the promised victory of the Son of God. Christ completely renewed all things, both taking up the battle against our enemy and crushing him, who at the beginning had led us captive in Adam, trampling on his head. And then goes on to quote Genesis 3.15. Trampling on his head. What does this mean for us today? Three things. Number one, we see God's heart for restoration. You see, here we have the first mention of the gospel. Uh, theologians call this the proto-evangelion. I remember I was, I remember exactly where I was. I was like 18 and a half years old. I've been a Christian for about a year. I heard that word for the first time, and I was like, that is such a sophisticated word. I wish I could use words like that. And then I pursued the next 20 years of my life to, to learn as many big words as possible. But anyway, that's all you Proto means first. Evangelion means gospel. It's the first preaching of the gospel. And my friends, where is the first preaching of the gospel? Is it at the, in the book of Deuteronomy, the fifth of five of the books of Moses? Is it in Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament? Like, no, the first time the gospel is preached is like on page one of the Bible. Like, God just can't wait. Like, before, before it's like before that fruit is digested into their bellies, God comes and makes a promise of the gospel that's going to come. It's going to fix everything that they've created. Like, like the father of the prodigal son in that famous story that Jesus told. As the prodigal son is walking towards him, about to admit how wrong he was, the father doesn't even listen to his speech, but runs towards him and scoops him up. He rushes towards sinners with a gracious offer of forgiveness and reconciliation. That's kind of God's heart towards reconciliation. Question is, will you receive it? Follow-up question is, have you received it? God is far more willing to forgive your sin than oftentimes we even are to confess them and come to him in the first place. And if God has such an overflowing heart of reconciliation and restoration, well then the follow-on question is, what does that mean for people like you and me? Should we be the kind of people who are stingy, wound-nursing, bitter-hearted withholders of mercy, or could this holiday season be a time of restoration for you as well? As you gather around the Christmas table with that relative, maybe the heart of God's restoration might flit through your mind in 20 days. So this means for us God's heart for restoration. Secondly, there's an expectation of conflict that we should have in this life. Uh, verse 15, it's ultimately about Jesus and his battle against Satan, right? Um, but of course, it does speak to just the way things are in this universe for now. Uh, the, the whole plot line of the Bible mirrors the fact that there is a battleground that humanity is living on. Cain against Abel, Egypt against Israel, 
Babylon against Jerusalem, the Pharisees against the Savior, the Roman Empire against the church. While there is a promise of eventual victory for those who are joined by faith to the skull-crushing seed of the woman, but attached to that, there is an expectation of conflict in this life. There's bruised heels here in this room. There always have been, and there always will be. There's victory, and there's conflict. Romans 16.20 connects us, our little lives, with the victory and the conflict of the Messiah. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. I love that verse. I always have. I love how the first half and the second half just seem so like jarring next to each other. But also I love the fact that it's because of his victory, we're swept up in his gravitational pull. He's the one who crushes Satan, and yet he uses wounded feet like mine and yours to do so. That means that in our discipleship process, as we grow in more conformity to be more and more like Jesus and less and less like our old selves, as our church like endeavors towards health and vitality, that is part of God's plan to crush Satan under our feet. And it comes oftentimes at a price. So God's heart for restoration, we have expectation of conflict in this life. Thirdly, finally, briefly, there is a guarantee of future victory. It's, it's a matter, it's like it's not, the, 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 the scales are not hanging in the balance. <laughs> On the one hand, we're involved in this, but yet it also is decreed from before time that Jesus will have his victory. We sang this in the first song. It's kind of an acapella rendition of it. That was, was cool that it worked out. And we sang together, he comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. And we've seen in Genesis 3, the curse is found in a lot of places. The curse is found in relational strife. The curse is found even in, in marriages. The curse is found in our bodies where there's pain or maybe there shouldn't be. There's curses found in the earth that we have to till it with the sweat of our brow instead of it yielding uh, what it could. And ultimately, the curse is found in a broken relationship between sinful humans and holy God. And Jesus comes to bring blessings wherever that curse is found. And so that's something for us to take heart in today. I think the sermon was short, so that's a Christmas gift for you all. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters, I pray that, um, that those of us that are experiencing different aspects, different kinds of the curse these days, in our bodies, in our relationships, in this world, I pray that you would make your blessings flow far as the curse is found. We look forward to that eventual victory we sure do. We thank you so much that it's guaranteed. But I pray that we can have little foretastes, little hints, little previews of that. 
I pray, Lord, that you would bring your peace where there is discord. We pray that you would bring your um, shalom where there is violence. We pray, Lord, that you, as the one who ultimately um, has dealt this deadly blow, um, Lord, that you would give strength to us as we follow after your wounded feet. We pray this in your name. Amen.